Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I'm here with, as always, Don Sam Alden. Welcome, welcome, everyone. And we have a special treat today. We are going into the literary world. We are putting our library lenses on. We're putting our glasses on, and we're going to be reading. We're going to discuss um, a really wonderful new work, uh, or a set of new works, the Five Queendom series, uh, Scorpica and Arca are the novels, and the novelist is here with us, Greer McAllister. Greer, welcome. Welcome. Thank you uh, so much. I had a much more elaborate intro for you, but as we know, um, there were some technical issues, so my intro has sort of vanished. But uh, in general, uh, Greer, you have written uh, the Five Queendoms series called uh, with Scorpa and Arca being your first two books. And you also have written a number of historical novels, uh, The Magician's Lie, Woman 99, Girl in Disguise, uh, which focus on female characters. And now you are uh, entering a world that is uh, with science fantasy and very female centric. So uh, I thought for our listeners, we would uh, just kind of uh, first, you know, get an introduction to you, your background, where you're from, where you grew up. How did you get into becoming a writer? What was your inspiration? That sort of thing. Sure. I'd be happy to start uh, start way back at the beginning with the birth and all that. Um, yes, I was uh, raised in the Midwest, in Michigan and then Iowa. Uh, I came to uh, the East Coast for college and have been moving up and down the East Coast ever since. I uh, got a, a bachelor's degree here in the Boston area and then uh, an MFA in creative writing at American University in Washington, D.C. So obviously I was passionate enough about writing to get an advanced degree in it, even though an advanced degree in writing does not qualify you for a single thing um, <laughs> about writing, except perhaps to teach it. And I found uh, I tried teaching writing and doing my own writing at the same time while I was in graduate school and I learned that I could not do it, um, which in fact is, you know, a learning. So, so I guess the degree did, uh, did uh, help me out in that way. It was great because I was focusing on, you know, reading great literature and discussing it with other people who are passionate about words. And I did have more time to write when I was a full-time grad student than I uh, did in the years after that, when I was full-time doing other stuff and just writing, uh, in the pockets between uh, those times. So um, I've always been a passionate writer, but uh, only much more recently have been a successful published novelist uh, getting paid for what I do. So wow. that's that's been a nice turn of events. Absolutely. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. What uh, just uh, what writers were your uh, inspiration? For? Who were you inspired by uh, in terms of maybe even the style or just content? What what was it that, that got you going? In, in the, the earliest one that I can remember is Madeline Langle, a, having mm. a wrinkle in time read to our fifth grade classroom, you know, when we got back from recess. And I think that was really my first experience with somebody making a world that I could just dive into and, and swim in and enjoy and, and having those characters feel as real to me as people I actually knew, you know, the Murray family, Charles Wallace, Calvin O'Keefe, you know, yeah. really that kind of, um, that kind of imagining really just caught my attention. Um, so for, for years I was just sort of delving into whatever sort of reading I could do, but I was an early lover of, of fantasy and science fiction, um, around college, Margaret Atwood became a, a huge influence. I really mm. uh, admired her range um, and and the way that she was successful enough to sort of wrote, write whatever she wanted <laughs> in terms yeah. of genre. She was skipping around from poetry to novels and, and from the realistic to the highly fantastical, um, right. which is not something every writer gets to do. So so those two right off the top of my head were, were pretty big influences as I was 
figuring out what I was going to write. Nice. Um, I, I, I didn't want to, Dawn, I thought you, uh, there were some questions you wanted to, to jump in with. So I was kind of, no, no, go for back. it. Um, on that topic. So you, you were inspired by kind of fantasy and world building. Um, how did you, let's just, before we get to the, the five queendoms and this real fantasy world, this rich world that you built, um, why did you focus on historical fiction? And obviously you can tell by the name of this podcast, uh, where our focus is, what made you, was there, what was the imperative to focus on women in this historical fiction uh, format? Well, I think I sort of fell into both by accident initially. I had a what I thought was a really cool idea for a book, um, which had happened before that I thought I had a really cool idea for a book, but then my <laughs> first one to actually succeed and, and get enough other people signed on to the idea that it was, that it was good. Um, I wanted to write about a female magician who cut men in half as part of her signature um, illusion. And that is amazing. That's a really, I I've, I've studied magic at the magic mm -hmm. castle here. So I, I'm fascinated by that as well, but I, I had never thought of the, the optics of the male song, the woman. Uh, and it's just so, it's just so widespread, right? Like right. magicians pull, pull, rabbits out of hats and they cut women in half and and that's you know just the stuff that they do and they make some stuff disappear and sometimes it comes back um but really that idea of the woman's role is to to be acted upon uh really sort of caught my attention and i decided to start researching uh that because i you know i'd seen ricky jay perform but that was sort of the extent of my uh, knowledge of of modern stage magic and when I researched it, what I found out was that the first woman who really claimed that as her signature illusion was in the 1980s. Hmm. So then I had the choice, do I write a contemporary novel with a female magician who's, you know, on the Ellen show or going on, on TV with Penn and Teller, or do I set it in the 80s? And I, you know, have been through the 80s once and it felt like enough. <laughs> so I started researching and digging back when when was the golden age of magic when when would the average person have seen stage magic on a friday night or as part of a you know a vaudeville bill with you know there's jugglers and tumblers and magicians and you know it's just part of part of a bigger picture and how could when could somebody make headlines so i sort of uh, latched on to one real life figure whose name was Adelaide Hermann, who had started out as her husband's assistant. And then when he died, she took over his act. Um, but she was not that kind of magician. She didn't cut people in half of, of any gender. So she's a character in The Magician's Lie, but she's not the, the main focus. I came up with a fictional magician. Mm -hmm. uh, and that book settled into sort of late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, 1905 being the present action of the book. And that turned out I was writing historical fiction without really meaning to. <laughs> um, I, I want, there's a couple of questions that I will, you know, we obviously won't lose sight of our, our, our queendoms, but I really am fascinated by this. So two questions for you. One, you said there was a woman in the eighties who was sawing, uh, make sure I understand it. She was sawing men in half. And then two, where did the, did you find in your research where the whole concept of sawing a woman in half came from because i when i think about it you know we all take it for granted but i i like why why did that come about of sawing a woman in half right so it, it's been a while now i don't remember the name of the woman um who saw men in half i thought she was a vegas magician but i could be wrong about that um i sort of turned away from after i found that nugget it sort of sent me off in a different direction so i didn't uh didn't keep track of that um, and the origin also, I don't know if it was a masculine or I'm trying to trace back who Dan, maybe there's, Is I thought there was old, a specific figure. Oh, okay. Okay. But but maybe not. But not, maybe not. not. Ago. Okay. Yeah. No, just curious. Okay. So, so we've got that world, which uh, now I have to find that novel because I'm going to be really fascinated <laughs> by it. Yeah. There's so many, you know, in, 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 in coming, uh, to uh, Scorpica, and then you know, finding out more about what you wrote, uh, particularly for obviously what we cover in this podcast. It's there's what you write about is really up our alley in so many ways. Um, so maybe let's just touch on the other historical novels, and then we'll go 
right to uh, Scorpica and the Queendom. So um, I'm particularly Girl in Disguise, which is the Pinkerton one, correct? Right. Yeah, that was the second one. So that was... Um sort of came from the idea of, oh, Kate Warren, uh, first female Pinkerton detective, 1850s Chicago, uh, helped save, save Abraham Lincoln's life on his way to his inauguration. And why do we all know really? the name of, why do we know the name of the guy who, who killed Lincoln and not the name of the woman who helped save his life, you know, wow. before I, he was I, even president? I have, Don, have you heard that story before? No, I haven't. I haven't heard it either. That's really amazing. I am, I am, you know, not quite the sole member of the Kate Warren Awareness Society, but I do. <laughs> I do think everybody should know her name. And then we'll, more people we'll have to have you back. Here. We'll have to have you back to talk about her uh, specifically because I think that's an amazing. <laughs> One of the things that we talk about quite a bit on this podcast is how it it is um, tragic and yet uh, continuous about how the history of women um, is repeatedly lost and erased. In our yes, society. And, so, and both were true of Kate. So yeah. nobody could write a biography about her because there just is not enough information. And I think that's one of the great things about historical fiction is it enables us to take the the seeds that are there and sort of imagine what these lives might have been like. Bring uh, them back to life in many ways. Yes, yeah, breathe some, yeah. some life into that woman. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so how did you, how did this lead you, these, these types of work to... Scorpicon, the five queendoms. How did you get to this? I mean, obviously, you had said you had a early on love the idea of world building and fantasy worlds, but what brought you to the five queendoms and specifically this type of world, which is again so it's wonderful and the kind of thing of you know Donna and I talk about that we're always looking for. But uh, how did this come about? It was a it was a bit reactionary. So I had been writing historical fiction for a while, and it's all of my historical novels are set sort of between 1850 and 1910 in America, and they're all very strongly based on actual life of the time, which means that women are just getting kicked around left and right um, in in these stories, which you know you can decide how deeply you want to go into that. Um, and how much of it you want to depict. But if you're showing a woman who is completely in charge of her own life in that time period and in that place, you're really making some stuff up. So um, I had started, uh, I was watching Game of Thrones, as so many people were. Uh, at oh, the time. Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine well, that's already you know. been spoken on um, some number of times. <laughs> No, we've never, we, Don and I have talked about it separately. Never, never all yeah, we've that. never gotten on the podcast, but just reading some of your other interviews, it sounds like your opinion is similar to mine, which uh, is, uh, no, could not, why? could not yeah. watch. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of it, you know, and his novelists of all kinds get to choose the worlds that they create. And thank mm -hmm. goodness we do. I love, I loved getting to choose the world that, that I put together in the five queendoms, but I had a choice about how much, you know, sexual violence there's going to be, how much, yeah. uh, you know, of the unsavory elements of different worlds, I get to choose the technology and the language and, and everything. And if I get to choose that, I choose to not show these things. Um, there is there's an appalling amount of violence in my books. I will be true. I, I will not lie about that. Um, but it's not sexual violence. So that that was a choice that I made. So what got to me in Game of Thrones is his female characters are, for the large part, or at least this was sort of second to last last season, um, interesting women, active women doing more than women in a lot of fantasy properties do. And yet we're still sort of trapped in, in what Martin chose to take from real life history in terms of patrilineal descent and who was in charge and why, and, and all of that based on gender. So it occurred to me that somebody should maybe write um, a big sprawling epic fantasy with all of these amazing female characters who were not constrained by patriarchy in the, in the way that um, uh, fantasy characters who are in a fantasy world based on the real world um, in history. Yes, 100%. Cue the so, applause, Sean. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, let's see if I get this. There we go. I, 
I do want to say there's one thing on Game of Thrones, and I will admit I was a big fan up until the last season. Um, mm-hmm. The last season, what, what threw me off from, a, from the perspective of women and women characters was, and I, and to be fair to George R. R. Martin, I the, uh, these were other writers taking some of his stories in other directions, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. What, what was really clear to me was the, the message you were given in the last season was, don't give women power because all they're going to do is burn down temples and kill everyone that they love. It was yep. a really sick and twisted. And yes, as, as Dawn really, because as a guy, obviously I'm engaging works very differently, pointed out to me there was a lot of sexual violence. It's it. it's every, we, every yeah. woman in at any given point, any violence against women is invariably sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure, the men get stabbed and beheaded and have limbs chopped off. But the women get raped. Yeah, yeah, no, nonstop. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely and I just and can't, I, just can't. And it's interesting as as uh, some as a man, as a male, you know, we're it's you you often miss that aspect of you don't miss the fact that there are rapes occurring, but you miss the fact that that is the way in which violence specifically is enacted upon those characters. And once you're made aware of it, you're like, holy crap! It really is everywhere there. And then it starts to feel like lazy writing. You're like, wow, you couldn't think of something else that could happen to this woman besides sexual violence? Or in a lot of cases, too, it's to further the the plot and the character of a man who's attached to that woman because this is right. happening to his wife or his daughter or something like yeah, that. Oh and it's God, yeah. there are so many more plots in the world. Let's find other plots. Let's just Amen. Cast Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so let's not give any more airtime to Game Thank of you. Thrones and let's get yeah. back to okay, our fabulous five kingdom. queendoms. Okay. So you, with that in mind, you decided to create this sprawling world. What were, uh, well, Dawn, I know you had some critical questions about what history it was based on, if any in particular. Yes, exactly. Uh, no, yes. Okay. Well, but there, was, there was the issue because Dawn and I were talking about whether I felt it was very much like the Moorish and Ottoman kind of uh, yeah. Ottoman Turk kind of world. Well, I feel like we Amazonian. You know? Yeah, I feel like we didn't let Greer finish answering the question because we went down a game of oh, thrones. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was sort of because that was the spark of inspiration. But I wasn't going to just clone the Game of Thrones world and then like make all the the people with crowns queens and call it good. Um, so I started with the idea of somebody somebody should have a big sprawling fantasy fantasy set in a matriarchal world or gynarchal gynarchal i, I yes. don't know what the yeah. quick explanatory comma for our listeners um a lot of the literature surrounding the five queendoms series is is constantly referring to these um these societies as matriarchies uh, which is a very different use of the word than we have used for three and a half years here on our podcast. We use matriarchy um, in the sense of Heideggertner Abendroth's definition of historical and current matriarchies as egalitarian societies of peace uh, that uh, practice gift economy and that have reverence for the female as um, as a loving, giving mother. These societies are not egalitarian societies of peace in the five queendoms. Um, so as we refer to them as either uh, as matriarchies here, we are actually um, m- this is more what we would have called on this podcast a gynarchy, which is basically very similar to a patriarchy with the genders flipped in that it is a hierarchical situation where lines of hereditary uh, heredity determine power, that kind of thing. I think the, so, the ancient Greeks would call them inverted cities. They were so afraid. We always, right. we, we, we take on the ancient Greeks a lot on this podcast for obvious <laughs> reasons. And yeah, they had things called inverted cities. Their great fear of women having power. And so they just saw it as a reversing uh, what they have, which I don't see also Scorbica necessarily doing either. There's certainly more um, that moves towards the way we describe matriarchies here. But again, we've, we've, jumped in here so please right so just just to let our our listeners know <laughs> but uh, right. go and ahead, I, and I will try to hew a little closer to to that definition and and 
So it, if I use the terms interchangeably, that's that's me just trying to adjust. Um, but women in charge, let's say. Amen. Um, so I wanted women in charge everywhere um, in this story, but it is not a utopia and it is not a dystopia. And that is part of, you know, because I had been very into fantasy when I was younger. I sort of drifted away from it, partly because it wasn't what I was writing. And I like to read in all genres, but I think most authors find themselves reading more heavily in the genre that they write, um, because you should not trust a writer who doesn't read heavily in the genre that they write. So um, I was not reading as much fantasy, sort of coming back into it. And then when I had this idea for um, the sprawling epic fantasy with women in charge, I thought, oh, well, surely somebody has written that. And so I read all of the books uh, that I could find that were billed as matriarchal societies or gynarchal societies or just some some way in which the role of women was very different and and a woman-centric society, woman-default society, something where um, the power was sitting with the women. So I read all sorts of things. And I did find that a lot of them fell into utopian, hey, the women are in charge and everything's great now, or dystopian, hey, the women are in charge and everything's even worse than it was before. Um, And that was, I wasn't trying to do that. Um, I had, you know, I read my Goodreads reviews and you're not supposed to read your Goodreads reviews, don't (laughs) read Goodreads reviews, but occasionally I find something fun. Um, And somebody was really pissed off um, in a review and said, well, what is this author trying to say? Like, these women are terrible. And what is this author trying to say that women can be just as terrible as men? And that's not not <laughs> the point. Right. Um, but let women be terrible, like in fiction. It's it's not realistic to say, oh, well, if women were in charge, then everything would be totally perfect and wonderful. Um, I can understand the, yes, peaceful society. Um, and I do sort of try to get away from what I think a lot of people in modern society would say, well, these are, these are the unchangeable facts about human nature. Men are going to do this and women are going to do that. And those aren't unchangeable facts about human nature. So so we just, it's very hard for us to let go of the way that things are being the only way that things could be or the only way that things things have ever been. So, um, and it is difficult for a, a historically oppressed class to to wrestle with this idea of like, well, if you put us in charge, we'd be just as awful as, you know, the oppressors that are keeping their boots on our necks mm-hmm. right now. But at the same time, uh, you know, it's a there's a wonderful Ursula K. Le Guin quote about how if you're if you're going to you have to allow women their humanity Mm-hmm. If you don't write about the dark parts of women as well as the light parts of women, then you're not actually writing about women characters. Right, right. That's and the well. great thing with having the huge cast is that I can write all different kinds of women, so many yes. different kinds of women, and they're not all terrible. Some of them are really wonderful people. Yeah. Um, the powerful ones tend to be not as good because how did they get there and and how does power change a person? But... Um, there are a lot of different people who are doing good things, doing selfless things, doing wonderful things. Uh, and then there are a lot of people who are just grim and holding on to power by any means necessary. And then there's a lot of variation in the five queendoms. So there is one of the queens who is very much making her decisions based on gender and saying, well, my, my queendom of women needs to survive and I will, you know, do bad things to a man who comes and and tries to be part of the society. But some of the other queendoms are very pro, you know, it's, it's almost egalitarian uh, in a lot of, um, in some of the other queendoms. So that was part of the idea of having multiple queendoms is saying, well, they're all affiliated and they're all interdependent, but there isn't just one way that a society would evolve with women in charge. There are a lot of different ways that it could evolve. You know, Absolutely. do men vote? Do men participate? Do men do childcare? Do men, you know, um, just how could it shake out? What are the different models of marriage? There are a bunch of different models of marriage in these queendoms. And there could be in, in any society where women are, are holding the reins of power. 
I yes, also wanted absolutely. to jump in and say too what I what I appreciate about that. And in the nature of this discussion, one of the things and Don and I have talked about it is that in representing people of different backgrounds, what tends to what I find is tending to happen recently is you know, conflict, there's all kinds of things which drive the story. Some may agree or disagree with the statement about it, but I think that there are different kinds of conflict or problems or things that make stories uh, interesting. And so if you only feel that if you're going to represent someone uh, who hasn't been represented, but you can only show this angelic version of that, you oftentimes don't get a very good story or an interesting story. So I really appreciate when particularly with the stories of women, you can still have this, these kinds of actions and conflicts and things that are moving the narrative along because that just is good storytelling and always mm -hmm. has been. So, mm -hmm. and this, and Scorpic is a good example of that. Yeah. So returning to different forms of marriage, I, I thought it was very interesting that you made one of the queendoms practice uh, uh, marriages where there was one woman and two husbands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the there there I didn't pull that one from a real world example. I can't remember if it made it into the final version of Scorpicar or not, but in Cestia they have what's called a walking marriage, which is based on um I'm gonna mess it up, but I think it's the Masuo or Mosuo of um China. Yes. But that's where it's, you know, the woman decides, and there's no paper or anything exchanged, but the woman has her household and she decides what man can can be hers. And then she sort of decides when he's not welcome to come over at night anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I got to be a magpie in this book in a way that I hadn't in my historical fiction. So in, in one way, it was very freeing to say, oh, okay, well, this thing happened, you know, this is basically a university and this is basically a fortress, but this is, you know, I'm pulling these underground houses from ancient Turkey and the, the treasury from Jordan. And I could do whatever I wanted in terms of architecture and crops and, and things yes. like that. And I'm fond of saying that the great thing about writing fantasy instead of historical fiction is I, nobody can send me an email and say, well, the Scorpica can't be hunting conies in March because that's not the season that conies are hunted. I'd be like, I made that up. <laughs> I say when cony season is. <laughs> I get to decide. <laughs> so that was fun. But then there's still, I mean, keeping track of, of a world of this complexity is its own uh, very obvious challenge. But, oh, so. my goodness. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I I wrote some stuff down as I was reading because I was like, hang on, I need to remember that because that's going to be relevant when we go to this kingdom about mm -hmm. where they worship this god. And I noticed that you say the gods when often it's goddesses. Yes, no feminine endings because if it's a, and this is, you know, I'm not a linguist, but this is sort of my attitude as an author going into it. If women are the default, mm -hmm. then why would you take a word and add more letters to it to make it about a woman? Words are about women to start with. So the women are gods. The women are um, monarchs and senators and priests. And um, unless I messed it up somewhere, <laughs> you will not find, you know, there's not a princess. That one actually almost got me because I had the word prince in there. For a very long time. And then I realized, unless I was going to have both male and female princes, I needed to come up with a different word. And so that's why we now have kinglings and queenlings right, um, yes. in the world of, of the yeah. five kingdoms. I also noticed that often you use, um, and and it's it's startling how often I was startled by it. But when you're talking about sort of the generic cross-section of humanity in these worlds, mm -hmm. you use the default pronouns of she. Mm -hmm. Because why wouldn't you? Right. If, if women are the standard and the men are the deviation from that standard. Mm -hmm. but, um, but, you know, we are so accustomed to he, him being the default pronouns in everything mm -hmm. we read. Mm -hmm. that uh, that just was this wonderful way of like waking me up every time I came across that. Very That's well awesome. done. So glad you noticed that. So we, um, Sean and I did have some questions about how the Scorpicans, um, what influences you used when you were developing the Scorpican society. 
Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. That that one is pretty Amazonian because uh, I think that there there are other bands of all female warriors um, throughout history, but not documented in this way and not written about in in fact and fiction in a way that could really let me triangulate something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to say, okay, well, there's this. Um, what would this society look like? Um, obviously a, a society that's all women has to figure out how it's going to grow. Are you going to grow by adoption? Are you going to, uh, grow by just going out and, and what I <laughs> collecting, what I call men's reign, somebody on Goodreads really hates that. But, um, <laughs> again, like I'm coming up with, if it's about the woman, the woman has the seed, the man doesn't have the seed, the woman has the seed. And so she's, she's getting that seed watered, however she sees fit. Um, and I did want to make it a much more sex positive society and say, nice. uh, there's not going to be, there's not going to be slut shaming. There's not going to be, you know, why, again, sort of it ties into, to default of, of patriarchal religion, but the idea that, you know, virginity is something to be hoarded and, and given, I'm like, what is that? So, um, so I, that's not how people look at it in the queendoms. So that's all a long way of saying that, that if you saw an Amazonian influence in Scorpica, uh, you were absolutely correct. <laughs> <laughs> Amazons are a through line in this podcast. We are, I mean, I, I personally am obsessed with Themyscira. It's a long story, but we've uh, talked to a lot of scholars and you, you'll see in back episodes of this podcast about the Amazon history, whether Amazons, mm-hmm. what they represent. So anyway, before I go off on a yeah. tangent on that. So and that's a real interesting, really interesting uh, basis to start And with. it's it's kind of an interesting tie-in with some stuff that we have talked about in the past as well, because I, I really, um, I really grooved on the little mentions that you sprinkled through the books of what the society was like before the great peace mm-hmm. and how it was a hunter gatherer society that were, were um, groups of matriclans, mm-hmm. which is of course a word that Maria Gimbutas has used, who is, uh, you know, this wonderful archeologist anthropologist um, who first proposed the idea or first sort of substantiated the idea mm-hmm. um, that there were goddess-based matriarchal peaceful societies on this planet for millennia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea that these this sort of prehistory of these matriclans was kind of similar to like a nod to that idea of Marie mm-hmm. Gimbutas was just absolutely like a little, a special little treat for me when I was reading <laughs> it. Um, can you talk a little bit about the religion in your world yes. building? All of mm-hmm. these, um, you know, this wonderfully rich um, religious structure that you've created. Yeah, I really, um, as I was developing the different queendoms, in similar, similarly to the way that they have different attitudes about men, they have different attitudes about marriage, having different gods and, and worshiping different gods would naturally be a part of that, right? To, to help inform their worldview. Um, I'm gesturing a circle as if anybody can see that. Um, <laughs> but, but to, to make it align, right? We believe what we believe and that affects how we act and how we feel about how other people act and everything like that. My initial model, because of the various mythologies, I just know the most about Greek and Roman mythology. I think that's not uncommon for, for uh, an American of my age. Um, but I wanted to have this massive pantheon and then just people could pick within that pantheon um, who they would be aligned to. So you have the all mother and her three daughters and then just absurd numbers of gods of every gender underneath that structure. So um, the idea of having a, a pantheon that vast um, was modeled for me on the sort of 
the Greeks, but I didn't start taking those individual gods and say, okay, well, this is the Jupiter of this world, you know? Right, um, right. It's not a one-to-one correlation. No. And I wanted, I was trying to break away from sort of my Western default um, view. And so I did more research and went broader. I'm like, oh, what about Inanna? And what about, um, you know, some of these other really interesting Indian gods, really interesting Egyptian gods. And um, because this isn't modeled on one particular place in time in history. And as I said before, I I was able to just sort of magpie and say, well, I'm kind of using this one story from Babylonian (laughs) of the Babylonian underworld. um, But people aren't going to then expect that I will keep the rest of it consistent with the vision of the Babylonian underworld because I'm not. Um, So I'm pulling Turkish names and I'm pulling, you know, I tried very hard to not have it line up too much with any one real place, real time, real pantheon. Um, but I did want to explore the idea of, of female gods and say, okay, well, what, you know, it's not just, hey, this is the the one in charge of childbirth and marriage. It's, they could be in charge of, of anything and everything. So um, I just sort of built that, built that from scrap metal myself and then uh, tried very hard <laughs> to keep it consistent. Wonderful. Yeah. One of the things that we've discovered in our researching of a lot of the um, female uh, divinities in various various world pantheons, but especially in the Greek pantheon, is that almost all of the female characters originally started as all mother figures of sex and death. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that, um, that, you know, as they were sort of colonized and and patriarchalized, they became you know the the goddess of of you know happy things or mm-hmm. or the goddess of um, you know of childbirth and the hearth and things that were still the province of women in those societies. So I I yeah I really appreciate the way that you have taken this philosophy if if this is a society that is female centric that of course their pantheon would be female centric as well mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah it's it's interesting because uh, we talk about we have our sort of uh, matron goddesses of this podcast obviously Circe but uh, we talk about Artemis a lot and Artemis had been this very powerful all mother kind of goddess and then she gets kind of moved into a specific way uh, Aphrodite or Venus was you know, a warrior as much as a love goddess. So all these goddesses were sort of taken and moved into a different kind of patriarchal, something that fit within the patriarchal structure. So now seeing that, you know, I, I love these, you know, they have God of chaos and you have, uh, there's the bandit God. It's just really very interesting to see the people, the characters that you've created, to see who they turn to in terms of their spiritual needs, which leads me to a question uh, about some of the characters. And in, in seeing some of the interviews that you've had, there is a particular character that you like, if I'm not mistaken, that's, that's <laughs> favorite. Uh, a very, a very tall lady, if I'm not, if I, if I've got that right. Is that correct? Yes. I'm, I'm a big physique fan. She was so fun to write. She's fabulous. She is. Actually, she's my fave too. So, oh, good. And she had my favorite line in uh, Scorpica, which uh, is, you know, what they say about too much time among men (laughs) makes you soft as a scrotum. (laughs) I'm very fond of that line. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I love. And she's the one to say it. She, oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, she's, she's a, a you know, running her bandit gang all hither and yon across Paxum. She's big. She's got a big sword. She says whatever she wants. Because would you say? Would you you know tell a seven foot woman with a big sword that she you know should do something different from what she's doing? I don't think so. Uh, at least I wouldn't. So she gets she gets to sort of run the show, but she has this you know tender heart. And I don't mean, you know, she's not all mushy underneath because she does, you know, she has been known to, for example, hang people who, who, uh, disobey her. So, um, she's not all marshmallow on the inside, but she is fiercely loyal to the people that she thinks deserve that loyalty. And, uh, 
I very much enjoyed her adventures. I had to trim a lot from the first draft of Scorpica because initially I was following five different um, plot lines in the five different queendoms. Mm. And there are still a lot of POV characters, but they're more clustered around sort of three main plots. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was looking for things to cut, I'm like, well, you know, do we need these bandits? Uh, and then I decided, yes, we really, really need these bandits. Yeah. Um, because I love these bandits. So yeah, <laughs> they stay. They're wonderful. Yeah. They're wonderful. Will we see more of, uh, Perhaps a reunion with Vish <laughs> in future novels. Rubbing my hands together, I will. <laughs> will not say that that is not going to happen. Uh, those two, those two deserve some happiness. So they we'll see how much longer they have to suffer before they can uh, can achieve that happiness. Nice. It's nice. on my radar. Awesome. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Let's talk about just. Uh, uh, as we come towards the end, just for the listeners, just uh, maybe talk about some of the, the different queendoms, uh, just to give them a little flavor of it, and any other characters that you might think from those queendoms that stand out um, to you. Sure, yeah. So the, fir- the first book is called Scorpica, but it's not focused entirely on Scorpica. All of the books uh, sort of have a, a wide canvas, have a big brush, and, and I feel like I haven't even mentioned... Um, you know, the the five queendoms had 500 years of peace. They were very peaceful societies and all functioning and interconnected. What kicks off the action of the book Scorpica is when girls stop being born. So one day there are girls and boys and, and others being born. And then um, all of a sudden uh, there aren't and scarcity breeds uh, conflict. Um so I think like you were saying, Sean, about, you know, you need conflict in a story. So that was that was how I sowed the seeds of, of conflict in this story. Uh, so Scorpica is the warrior queendom, again, most, most closely uh, modeled on the Amazons. But they also are sort of rented out across the other queendoms as the enforcers, as the police force, um, as, as sort of because they are the best warriors, they're the best suited to to that task. So it becomes destabilizing when uh, that role is called into question. Um, but they are the only all-female queendom. Paxum is sort of the, the most diplomatic and the largest and most central country. Um, they have a queen, but they also have a senate and an assembly. There's some political stuff that happens in, in the second book that, that focuses on the, the senate of Paxum. There's Arca, which is the uh, nation of magicians. It is a desert area. Uh, and the women there have all sorts of different magic. I won't go into the whole complex system <laughs> because we <laughs> right. Um, and but you, you need read to the read book. the book. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> but they all have different talents. And the idea with magic in this society was it was given to people to help their community. So their gifts aren't generally things like you know, I'm going to blow a hole through a brick wall at 30 paces. It's things like I can make a fire roar higher. I can make plants grow faster, that sort of thing. Um, but then there are some who are blessed with all magic that goes across all of the different categories. And those people um, are eligible to become queens. So it isn't um, female lineage in uh, that puts a queen on the throne in Arca the way that it is in, in Paxum, for example. Um then there's Cestia, who I will also mention. Um, I think you don't see that much of it in the first two books, but in Cestia, there's a, a priest queen. And so their temple is also a palace, is also, um, you know, this, this very central religious place. And the inspiration for the way that that is organized is the Vestal Virgins. Right. Because so, um, they're. Yeah, so I was going to say that 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 society of religious uh, rulers is chaste. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Or are they? Um, <laughs> they're, ah. supposed to, they're supposed to be. But we'll see. Um, and then the rest of the rest, they're also the breadbasket. So the rest of Cestia is farmland and and sheep grazing fields and things like that. So they sort of feed um, the rest of the queendoms. And then the fifth queendom is the weirdest and the one that I most often have people asking me, when are we going to find out more about the bastion? Right. But it is a fortress and it's 
it's such a big fortress that it's an entire queendom uh, in and of itself. And it stands between Paxum and uh, Scorpica. Um, but it's a nation of scholars. And so they're always trying to figure out um, what box people fit into and um, how education can help everyone improve. And uh, they also have some really interesting um differences between the way that they're supposed to do things and the way that some of them do things. Uh, but I will not go any further into Right. Well, you did hint that, that, that the bastion might be um, uh, close to closer to what we term a matriarchy in that there is no central ruler. It is a consensus based um, decision-making body. So even though there yes. is a queen, I'm putting that in air quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, it is more of a consensus-based uh, society, which so that that sort of perked me up as well. I was, I was like, about oh, to well, say, yeah, there's learn more about that. Here who wants to know about Bastion? <laughs> yeah. asking, <laughs> she mentioned, I really want to hear more about Bastion. So I'm like, okay, well, there you go. I guess maybe there's something about it that people are kind of clicking into it. And going, yeah, okay. their interest is peaked, which is why. Uh, if your publishers, if they're listening, we must have five books. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I agree. Uh, well, let's get let's give applause to that too. Like especially, <laughs> well, I I on that topic, I, I did note that you had mentioned something that obviously there was the idea for five books, but you also said that you had structured this as well as a trilogy. So maybe could you talk about that sort of what your plans are, and again, as we hope there will be five books for this, but what are your kind of structural plans for where the story's going? Yeah. So my structural plans for where the story's going, I have, I have so many things that I sowed the seeds for in the first couple of books. Mm. Um, We have decided we're going to make a bunch of them pay off in the third book. So you can have a, because left to my own devices, I would just write cliffhangers from like now till <laughs> 2079 and you'd all be really mad at me. So um, we're going to do some things closing off, one major arc closing off at the end of the third book that will not be a cliffhanger. It will be a satisfying trilogy, but there are enough things that are still outstanding from um, those three books that if fourth and fifth could easily be built onto onto that structure. And I already know sort of what the end of the fifth book is. So it's all, it's all gurgling around. uh, Rattle around in the brain pan. Do you, (laughs) do you have any plans to ever go back and pick up um, chunks of the, the past or are all the books, are you planning all the books to move forward in time? This set of five is, going forward for okay. sure that's start starting with the drought of girls and then ending some period after that but i did think if i do set another series in this world i would love to do the great piece and talk yes. about that moment where it turns from tribal and you know decentralized and and functional but but they're limited on how much they can achieve because it's it's all these small things how did they decide what happened what and who were the inciting. women who did it? yeah yes. what was the inciting yeah. incident there absolutely right. yeah right so yeah. I'd, I'd love to i'd love to focus on that in uh in another series it's a big world nice yes it is and one more question which you may or may not choose to answer um I noticed that in the second book, in Arca, we start to um, to actually uh, have moments with the gods, with uh, Velja and Eresh. Mm-hmm. Are they going to play a larger part in future books? They are definitely around. Wonderful. They are definitely present. Wonderful. <laughs> I love it. All right. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with about this world, about Scorpio, or just about anything generally? That's so wide open. Um, (laughs) My brain is a complete blank. Um, But I do think, you know, I'm not, I, I would never say like, oh, I'm the only one doing this because I'm not. So if you are interested in worlds, in fictional worlds where women are in charge, um, there is a lot of great stuff out there. It is, of course, you know, a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of the market compared to 
patriarchal stories or stories right. that are based more on the power structures that we would recognize from today's society. Right. Um, but don't get discouraged if you don't find something right away that has it because there are lots of fascinating stories. And there are so many fascinating stories also of women born in patriarchal societies breaking out and changing the power structure. So it's so it's so fun for me to read the different ideas and the different manifestations of of this that um, that people are coming up with. It's really neat. So yeah. you know, we have created. Uh, we're both creators, and we're creating our own. Have been for a little about a few years now, creating our own uh, matriarchal gynarchical world. Um, that is kind of a. Um, uh, I would say it's where warriors and different kinds of women come into being. And so, mm. so we, so yeah, so they're out there. It's one of the reasons we love what you're doing and, and think it's great because we're all trying to create a similar sort of thing going on in a kind of different virtual vein. Uh, ours is kind of in a, a future setting. So, um, so yeah, it's absolutely. out there. Uh, well, thank you. Yes, thank you so much, and uh, and you know, an encouragement again to our listeners. Um, these are fabulous books, and they are rollicking good reads. So, please pick them up, and uh, we are very much looking forward to the next soon to be named <laughs> installment in the Queendom series. Yeah, that one's coming next year, twenty twenty four. Fabulous. So. Thank you, Greer McAllister. Let's give you a final round of applause here. Um, thank you to Don Sam Alden. Uh, thank you, Sean Marlon Newcomb. And thank you all for listening. Uh, this is the 34 Search Salon, the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast. Take care and... Take care, everyone. Blessed be.